0: A police officer pulled over a vehicle for speeding. He walked up to the window, and he looks, and there's a little elderly lady in there. He said, ma'am, you're doing 70 miles an hour in a 55. She said, no, officer, you're you're wrong. The speed limit is 70. He said, no, ma'am, the speed limit's 55. 55. She said, No, officer, I just saw the sign. I just passed it. It said 70. He said, Ma'am, you are on highway number 70. The speed limit is 55. And she said, Oh, you should have seen me on highway 121. And in the New Testament, the religious leaders were doing exactly the same. They read what the law said, but they were misinterpreting it. Now, as we come to verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus preaching the greatest sermon ever been preached. He's preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He has now introduced the sermon through the Beatitudes. Last week, he talked about our influence as salt and light. And now he addresses how his followers, you and I, are to relate to the law. We are not to follow a misrepresentation of it. We are not to misinterpret it like the religious leaders. So listen to what he said, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here's the fundamental question. What does it mean to be righteous? Does it mean just simply doing external things like trying to be good and trying not to curse and coming to church? Or does it mean that there's something that even goes beyond that that has to be internal that God puts in you through Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be righteous? And that's what Jesus dealt with in the Sermon on the Mount in this section. So let's look at what he had to say about relating to the law notice verse 17 first number one first of all fulfilling the law verses 17 and 19 but look at verse 17 jesus said do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets now that was how jesus was describing the old testament whenever he says law or prophets he's talking about what we know as the old testament So, if you were to take an Old Testament survey course, one of the things you would learn is the Old Testament is divided into three sections. Law, prophets, and writings. So, the Jews would just kind of summarize the Old Testament by calling them the Law and the Prophets. Just omitted writings that was assumed. So, anytime you see in the New Testament reference to the Law and Prophets, it's talking about what we know to be the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying, don't think I have come to do away with the Old Testament. There are some people that believe that today. Church of Christ, for example, believe the Old Testament is gone. Jesus came to abolish it. He came to do away with it. They preach and teach from the New Testament only. Jesus said, I didn't come to do that. I I didn't come to abolish the Old Testament. So he wanted to make it very clear that he did not oppose what God had given the Israelites in the Old Testament. Now people were wondering when Jesus came, okay, he's just this, some radical who's come. He's preaching a new message and everything we've heard before, you can just ignore it because he's superseding all of it. And he's saying, no, 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 that's not it at all. I'm not coming to strike down the Old Testament. I'm coming to fulfill it. So his emphasis was on the internal rather than The external. Now, notice what he said next. Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill them. Now, the word abolish there, you'll see it on your screen. It's the word luo uh, with the prefix kata in front of it in the Greek language. It means to unloose. It means to dissolve. It means to stop a journey. So, let's say you're traveling somewhere and you stop overnight in a hotel you're breaking up the journey. And that's what kataluo literally means, stopping the journey. The Old Testament story began, the journey began in the Old Testament. Jesus is not stopping that. He's continuing on with the Old Testament the redemption story of God that's there in the law and the prophets. The word fulfill means to fill up to the brim, to the top, to cause God's commandments to be obeyed as they were always intended in the Old Testament to be obeyed. There were 613 Old Testament laws. 613. Jesus never broke a one of them. He obeyed it perfectly. only person in the world that's ever done that. Now, there are some people that say, well, Jesus contradicted Old Testament law. No, no, he never did. He contradicted man's interpretation of it. He did that several times, New Testament. And they're going, oh, you're breaking the law. No, no, I'm not breaking the law. I'm breaking your interpretation of the law, which is wrong and misguided. So he came to fulfill it, obey it perfectly, and add his authoritative approval to the Old Testament. Now go to verse 18. He says something interesting. Jesus said, For truly I say to you. Now every time you see that phrase in the New Testament, listen carefully because he's about to say something really important. Anytime Jesus says, Truly I say to you, Verily, verily I say to you, or any statement like that, what he's about to say, he is adding emphasis to. So what he's about to say is really important. Listen, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What's he saying? He's saying, as long as this earth turns, nothing in the Bible will be wrong. Wow. Well, we, we see what Jesus thinks about the Bible, don't we? He's very strong in the Bible. What do Americans believe about the Bible? Well, as the years go by, the Bible is falling out of favor with Americans. In 1980, 1980, survey asked Americans, is the Bible literally true? Forty-eight percent of Americans said yes, 1980. 48% is still less than half. 48% in 1980. Now go along to 2017. Same question. Is the Bible literally true? 33% of Americans said yes. It's dropped from 48% to 33%. Now go to 2022, last year. July of last year. Same question. Survey. Is the Bible literally true? The number of Americans that said yes, it is literally true has dropped from 33% down to 20%. The lowest in U.S. history of people saying, yes, the Bible is literally true. Now, Jesus told us not, no, there's not one little dot going to pass away from the Word of God until it's all fulfilled. But Americans have dropped from 48% down to 20%. One out of five say the Bible is literally true. Four out of five say it's not. In fact, the last survey, Last year, 2022, more Americans said the Bible is a collection of fables and myths and legends than said it's true. Twenty-nine percent of Americans last year believe it's full of myths and legends. And only 20% believe it's true. So what Americans believe and what Jesus believes, totally different. but you know even within christian circles there are those that disagree with jesus well you know i i, you, I don't you can't say you can't use the word inerrant okay because I, well, you got some discrepancies and it's mostly true even christians say that or christians say well it can lead you to truth rather than saying it is truth even believers in church don't have as high a view of Scripture as Jesus did. So, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? Well, he was he was more than an inerrantist. In fact, there's strong support. Jesus believed the verbal inspiration of Scripture. Because he said, not only are the ideas inspired of God, the words are inspired of God, the dots above the I and crossing, the T is inspired of God. The jot and the tittle, all inspired of God. Now, whenever he said not one iota or one dot will pass away until all is accomplished, let me explain a little what that iota and dot was. It's, it literally means jot or tittle. Now, the jot referred to the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Old Testament written in Hebrew. The tittle referred to the 8th letter of the Greek alphabet. Like, it's like crossing a T or dotting an I. But let me show you on the screen the difference. First of all, this is the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew is read from bottom to top, from right to left, rather than left to right. And the the jot is the yod. You see the yod up there, very far right corner? Notice how small it is compared to all the other Hebrew letters. In fact, it's the smallest of the Hebrew letters. In fact, it even looks like half a letter, doesn't it? And sometimes it's even smaller than half of all the other letters. So the yod, was the, the jot, was the smallest letter of the Hebrew language. And Jesus said not even a little dot is untrue. Now, let's go to the tittle. let go over here. If you know, those are two Hebrew words, and the only thing, the one on the left and the one in the middle, two different Hebrew letters, and, and the only thing that distinguishes them, can you see on, in the middle, there's a little bit of, uh, on the very top, it sticks out a little bit more to the right than the one on the left. The left's a little more flush, and that sticks out. In fact, I circle right there for you, the little part sticking out. That's called a tittle. A tittle, the word tittle literally means a little horn. So it looks like a little horn added to this word. Just a very small. In fact, when you're reading on the page, it's not quite that large. You can barely tell, is it this letter or that letter? Because the tittle is so tiny. And Jesus said, not even the yod or the, or the little horn tittle of everything written is False. that's pretty strong inspiration of Scripture, isn't it? Not from this some flaming fundamentalist, from Christ. So the Bible must be taken literally, folks, in what it teaches. I'm sorry. I know our culture doesn't agree with that, but it must. Don't ignore what he said. Don't devalue what he said in his word. Don't try to explain away what he said in the Bible. Don't try to justify your actions. Don't try to justify lifestyles. Simply go by what it tells us. Because what you have here is truth. Now look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The word relax there. Some of your translations say breaks. But the word literally means to take your shoes off, to like unlace your shoes and, and, and loosen your shoe so you can take it off. Or unloosen a sandal and take it off. That's the word he uses. So whoever takes the Bible itself and loosens anything that it says, anything that it's told us, loosens it to where it's a little less than what it was will be called least in the kingdom of heaven and whoever teaches it just as it is will be called great in the kingdom of heaven so let me ask you a question what biblical teaching are you relaxing maybe it's coming to church go when I can and go and we're not busy and you kind of relax the commandment to not forsaking the believers or maybe tithing well I, I, I do it every now and then I ever, every other paycheck I, I, but I, you kind of relax it a little which commandments are you relaxing sexuality Because culture believes differently, so relax just a little bit. Your language, how you speak, relaxing that a little. What commandments are you, loosening your shoes and taking them off, you're relaxing. Then number two, he goes to the last verse, verse 20, failing at the law. Verse 20. The next statement Jesus made probably sent shockwaves all through the crowd. Now remember we talked a couple of weeks ago and as Jesus was preaching this Sermon on the Mount. It, it's the Sea of Galilee here. It's an incline that goes up to city set on a hill of Safed up there. And so he's up here teaching down below by the seashore is the crowd and then his 12 disciples are right here. The Bible said as we began he saw the crowd and he began to teach his disciples. The next statement that he makes probably shocked the disciples and the entire crowd crowd when he said it. Here's what he said. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now hold on a second. The scribes and the Pharisees were the most religious people in the land. They were the best of the best i mean they were the ones that had given their lives to study the bible they are the ones that had given their lives to know this backwards and forwards to transcribe it to live meticulously by everything it says and now jesus is telling me i have to be better than they are or i'll never go to heaven how on earth is that possible I'm nearly not what they are. They're the experts. They're the scholars. They are the seminary graduates. How on earth can I be better than them? How can I be more righteous than them? And the word exceed there literally means to To go beyond, it's perisos, it means to go beyond a fixed number. It's used in other ways as an overflow of a river, used in other ways as a remainder, like in a math problem, you have a remainder left over. It means to exceed what's full. So you look at their righteousness, and you've got to be better than that. How? How? Because they had focused on the external, and Jesus said, you must have the internal not just doing good things. You've got to have Jesus Christ cleansing your heart, forgiving you, and your righteousness exceed just trying to be good. The word never there is interesting. Whenever he said, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In the Greek, it's two small words together, may." And, and Ume is is the strongest negation you can write. Paul did it several times, but whenever the best way to translate ume, we just put never, but it's it's a strong emphasis. Is this a, it was as if I stand before you and, and I just go never, 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 and I just keep getting louder and going on and on and on. That's how you translate Ume. So what Jesus was saying was He makes an exception for nobody. It's not like you're going to get up there and stand before the pearly gates and go, well, you know, I I had this going on and that going on, and you'll make an exception for me? No exceptions. You must have a righteousness that Jesus has cleansed your heart. No exceptions. Or you'll never see heaven. Now, here's the problem with the scribes and Pharisees. They obeyed the most minute detail of all 613 laws, but they ignored the heart behind the law. They ignored the intent behind it. They focused on the externals. And Jesus must provide you internal change. Warren Wearsby, pastor of Moody Church in Chicago for many years, he said, verse 20 of chapter 5 is the most important verse in the entire Sermon on the Mount because it deals with the key word of righteousness. What makes you right before God and what makes you right is not a superficial outward religiousness, but a righteousness of the heart. Now, let me give you an example of how difficult it would have been to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. Today in Israel, about 12% of the population uh, are called ultra-Orthodox. Or, or they, they are like the scribes and Pharisees. They go by every ha'adim is, is what they're called. They go by the most minute detail. They don't have technology. They don't have cell phones uh, they're on newspapers, they have someone who is designated in the community to, if there's an emergency they need to know about going on worldwide, they let them know. One person is designated to do that. They close their streets on Sabbath day so no car can go up and down. The buses stop, taxi stop, Ubers stop, everything stops. Because if you travel on the Sabbath, that's considered work and that's breaking the law. And if you drive, if you happen to drive your vehicle on a road in this community, uh, they will stop, they will surround your car, beat on the hood. They'll, they'll yeah, it's not good because you're breaking the law. It's a, it's a part, it's a community of about 200,000 people, about 12% of Israel. It's just east of Tel Aviv, and the name of the community is B'nai Brock. Back in 1992, in August, a fire broke out in the community of B'nai Brock on the Sabbath day an apartment building started burning on the Sabbath they wouldn't call the fire department because that would be considered work on the Sabbath so all the citizens just stood around and watched it burn finally after a while they're thinking well uh, let's see if we can get special permission from the rabbi to call the fire department is it like an emergency that would be, would be okay? So they walked down to the rabbi's house and asked him, could, could we uh, call the fire department? He said, okay, in this case you can. It will not be a sin against you. It won't be, it won't be wrong on the Sabbath. Call the fire department. So the fire department came. By the time it got there, three apartment complexes had been engulfed in flames. And the insurance company failed to pay for the damages because they said negligence had happened. They were so religious. Every single detail of the law they're trying to fulfill. How do you get more religious than that? And Jesus said, you've got to be more religious than that to get to heaven? Who can go? But the point was, Unless your righteousness exceeds that, you can see how the disciples and the crowds would have been stunned by that. But his point was, not an outward righteousness, you must be forgiven of sins and your heart cleansed. And you must possess an inward righteousness that comes only through Jesus Christ. And folks, we probably have those here in our congregation today that are probably trusting, trying to be good to get you to heaven rather than trusting God christ to get you to heaven back in 1678 john bunyan was an english writer and he wrote a a story called the pilgrim's progress some of you probably read it for school some of you have to read it in high schools here's a picture of of the book 1678 john bunyan wrote it if you've not read the pilgrim's progress here's the gist of it it's an allegory of the christian life and it's an allegory in a dream sequence this man has a dream that he's going from his hometown to heaven. The man's name is Christian, obviously. The name of his hometown is the city of destruction, and the name of heaven is the celestial city. So he's on, Christian is on his way from the city of destruction, his hometown, to the celestial city. And the story Pilgrim's Progress is all about stops along the way at what he sees and experiences and learns. And if you remember in the story, one of the stops was at a house called the Interpreter's House, and it was interpreting the Word of God, symbolic for that. So Christian stops at this house and knocks on the door. Nobody answers. He knocks again, nobody answers. He keeps knocking, keeps knocking, seems like forever, nobody answers. Finally, the door creaks open. And Christian asks, why did it take so long to answer the door and the owner said this is the interpreter's house this is interpretation of the Word of God you need to do it slowly and carefully so Christian enters the room as he does a servant comes and lights a candle obviously illumination in interpreting the Word of God lights the candle And as he lights the candle, Christian looks and he sees dust on everything, dust covering the house. And all of a sudden, one of the servants comes up and gets a broom and starts to sweep the dust. And the more that the servant sweeps the dust, the more the dust grows and it's in the air, and it's choking Christian as he's trying to see through the dust, and the more he sweeps, the worse it gets, and the dust now has filled the room until the owner of the house instructs a servant girl to go get some water and bring and pours all over the whole room, and the dust leaves. Do you remember this part of the story? And Christian turned to the owner of the house and said, what on earth was that about? And the owner said, this room is the heart of an unsaved person. And the dust is sin. And the broom is the law. All 613 laws. And the water is the gospel of Jesus and all the law can do with sin is to stir it up and make it worse it can show you your sinfulness but it can't do anything about it it must take the gospel of the blood of Jesus to remove the sin and John Bunyan was putting in practice what Jesus had talked about or putting in allegory form what Jesus had talked about your righteousness must be greater than simply trying to obey the law If all you do is try to sweep the sins away with the broom of the law, it only gets worse. The law can show you your sin. It can't remedy it. Early 1934, Charlotte, North Carolina. There was a 16-year-old boy who wanted to join the church youth group went to the youth activities and wanted to become a part of the youth group. And the youth minister wouldn't let him. He denied him coming to the youth group. He said, you're too worldly for us. The 16-year-old boy was offended and says, I'm a Christian. Well, you don't act like it. And he wouldn't let him in the youth group. Later in 1934, in November of 1934... The church held a revival meeting. The boy's father was a member of the church and active in the church, and he helped get the revival together. They were going to have a wonderful evangelist come by the name of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was preaching all across the United States and powerfully preaching and such a good communicator, and they got him to come to their church. It started in November of 19, actually, end of October 1934. So as they began the revival, they invited the 16-year-old boy that was not allowed in the youth group. They invited him to come to the revival service. And so he did. And he said, I'd never seen anything like it. He listened as Mordecai Ham, great big man, preached the gospel. And he said, Mordecai Ham would point his finger at the congregation. And it seems like a place was packed, but it seems like every time he pointed, he was pointing at me he said, I got under conviction that I needed to trust Christ as Savior, but I didn't do it. And I went home, and I laid awake all that night, knowing the next night I want to go back and listen to Mordecai Ham again. He was good. And laid awake all that night. And the very next night, he went, and rather than sitting out in the crowd, though, he joined the choir that was singing that night. Because he said, if I'm in the choir, Mordecai Ham can't point at me. He never turned around and pointed, so I was up in the choir. I joined the choir, but I wanted to listen to him, and I didn't want that finger pointing at me. And that boy, as Mordecai Ham preached that night, November 1st, of 1934, gave his heart and life to Jesus for the very first time. Boy, you know him, his name's Billy Graham. There's his picture, he became an evangelist himself. Pointing his finger like Mordecai Ham. And later on, before Billy Graham died in 2013, he granted an interview and he was describing in this interview what happened on the evening of November 1st, 1934. And he said, Here's what happened as Mordecai Ham preached. He said, As he preached, my life changed. I wasn't just trying to be good all the time anymore. If there is no change in a person's life, he or she must question whether they're really saved or not. There are many people, Billy Graham said, who go to church who have not had a life-changing transformation in Christ. It's not about being good and keeping the law. You must have a righteousness that exceeds the law. You must have an inward change. Exactly what our Lord said on the hillside in Galilee a long time ago. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you today for your word that you gave to us. And Lord, I want to thank you for Jesus making eternal life possible. And God, there's probably those here in our congregation right now, those joining us by live stream, that they're just trying to somehow make it to heaven and live a good life by being as good as I can, and although that's commendable, it's not effective, Lord, I pray that they would give their life to Jesus for the very first time and let him come into their heart and life and change them on the inside, not just the outside, and God, may that happen even now, in Jesus' name.